Welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today, Chad sits down with Alex McCaw, co-founder and chief technology officer of Clearbit, a marketing data engine that combines public and private data sources to allow companies to truly understand their customers, identify future prospects, and personalize every single marketing and sales interaction. Alex's career path to CEO is unlike any other. He dropped out of high school at the age of 17 as an immigrant from the UK and was determined to become a successful self-taught programmer. He traveled to Southeast Asia, and during that time, he wrote two successful books about programming, catapulting his way into founding Clearbit in 2014. On this episode of Mission Daily, Alex discusses his path to founding Clearbit, his philosophy of building a fun culture within his company, and the importance of keeping your employees happy and motivated. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Alex, you said you're calling in from San Francisco. Is it from Clearbit headquarters at home, uh, another studio where you at? Well, we actually have a little podcasting studio that we set up in our office. And we have one office in, we actually have a couple of offices in San Francisco and an office in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then uh, the rest of the team is distributed around the States. Uh, very cool. And uh, the states meaning primarily the U.S. or? Uh, yeah, the okay. United States. Yeah. Yeah. We have about 100 people at this point and about half of them are, are remote. Very cool. And um, building a remote team is tough. Any lessons learned? I mean, I'm sure there were many that you'd like to share about scaling to a 100 person remote team. Yeah, I'm not sure we um, have quite got it dialed in yet. I think it's an area of improvement for us. I mean, I definitely have some tips like. You know, make sure all the conferencing uh, equipment is incredible, you know. Um, I think <laughs> people true. feel a little left out sometimes when they're remote. They don't know quite when to interject in the conversation. So good conferencing equipment will help with that. The other, the other big problem with remote work is loneliness. And I do believe that there will be a massive company created to try and solve this problem. I think that's what we work honestly was trying to do to some extent. Yeah. Um, and we've tried to combat this problem with a few things, you know, company offsites is one way. Another way is through computer games. So on Fridays we'll play computer games. We'll actually do LAN parties and we'll play counter-strike and, uh, there's awesome. quite, quite <laughs> a lot of camaraderie and bonding that comes through that. Any other games that are uh, favorites at the headquarters right now? Uh, yeah, Nintendo, Wii, Super Smash Bros., uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> gotcha. And I'm sure your team is like always recruiting. Are there any key positions or what's on your agenda right now as far as recruiting goes? Uh, well, we've just closed a number of key positions. Um, so as far as I'm personally concerned, um, I'm going to be doing less recruiting myself. We just closed a, a COO. Uh, but, um, yeah, we're always recruiting. If you have a look at the jobs page, there's a ton of jobs on there. Um, we definitely need more people on the uh, programming side of things, full, full stack engineers, that kind of thing. Very cool. And you, if I read right, dropped out of high school at 17, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was quite a, um, a big leap that I took, you know, but I, had come to the conclusion that software engineering was my calling and, um, and I'd done a fair amount of it, of it at school and I'd even done paid consultancy work at school. And I was just extremely fortunate to find something that I loved so much that early on in life. 
you know, and the options were to either do a computer science degree or to start work immediately. And the theory of computer science didn't appeal to me that much. So I just dropped out of school when I was 17 and moved to London. And where did you drop out? What was that school? And um, could you kind of set the scene for the culture of the area? Oh, golly. Uh, well, the school was a tiny little uh, boarding school called King's Bruton in Somerset. This is the English countryside. And I, it was a very pretty unacademic school. And I was largely left to my own devices, which was great because I just started programming. You know, I feel like if I had gone you, to... You mean uh, you don't like constant adult supervision? Yeah, <laughs> I do, do, do not. You know, <laughs> my dorm room was at the back of a broom closet. And for many terms, the housemaster didn't even know that it existed. It was just it was me and a friend of mine in there. And so I just got to go to my own devices. I could just program all, all day and no one would bother me. <laughs> Very cool. I'm curious, um, on those days where you get to program all day, do you think that many other people get to find something like that? Or would you encourage people that find a passion or an obsession like that to explore it? You know, and if so, how do you kind of explore it in a safe way so that it becomes kind of like a healthy addiction and not a hurtful one? If you are lucky enough to find something that you would love that much early on in life and you can get paid for it, um, just go ahead and do it. I think sure. yeah. uh, you don't need anyone's permission. What's lovely about computer programming is there are no gatekeepers. You know, you, you don't have to have a degree. You can just get started from, from your bedroom um, or from your dormitory or wherever it is. And no one needs to know on the other side, you know, I was doing paid consultancy. They had no idea that it was a 15 year old on the other <laughs> side of it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, that's a, an interesting point as well, because would you agree with the statement that there is pretty intense ageism in our culture in terms of like face-to-face interactions? Like in terms of young ageism, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I was always given... Because the financial the angle is what um, I always struggle with, right? Because, uh, you know, you just mentioned that being behind the computer helped you do that. And I was just thinking of how difficult it is to do those things in person if you are a young person. So you show up in London. Uh, do you have money in your pocket? I assume you, you know, you're 17 on the verge of turning 18. Uh, what's that experience like? And how did you uh, build up from ground zero there? Well, I had been doing a lot of open source work at school. And that work had uh, elevated me to a certain degree. And that was enough for me to get an internship in London and then um, a proper job. And I joined a company called Revu. That was one of the first Ruby shops in London, the first companies ever to use Ruby. And I, I feel kind of sorry for that company because I made all of my mistakes or many mistakes at least at that company um, and learned how to code. And they were very um, patient with me and there was a fantastic team. And then I worked at various companies in uh, London. I even tried starting my own companies. Um, and then I went on a brief stint to the States. And that was enough to convince me that I wanted to move there forever. So you did the brief stint to the States. Where'd you go? And uh, can you set the stage there 
what led you there and why did that experience uh, kind of lead you to come here? Well, I went to San Francisco for three months and again, I worked on another failed startup. I have many, many failed startups <laughs> in my history. And, uh, but what came out of that was um, a real love for the city and, and the people in it. And I realized that this was the epicenter of technology and I needed to be there if I was going to achieve anything. And the problem was that I didn't have any qualifications and that's not a problem when it comes to getting jobs. No one gives, no one cares about that in San Francisco, but the U S government does care about that. And so I had an extremely hard time figuring out how to get a visa. So a friend of mine is uh, struggling with that process right now. Is there really any solution for that right now? Because it seems to be such a murky world that I, I wonder you know, why is it that talented people are not allowed to work here? Because that's what we continue to say. What, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the system? It's really sad that this uh, has got caught up in a like left versus right debate. Right. Because it, it categorically is a good thing for the country if you let in talented people. Um, now, I can understand. People, uh, I mean, are basically in some cases trying to escape here, right? Um, in the case I'm thinking of, the person is, they, they're desperate to come here almost. And it's like, uh, you know, it's just a sad thing. Yeah. I mean, like I get it. In my case, I had no qualifications. And if I was designing a visa system, I probably wouldn't let in randos like me that had <laughs> no qualifications at all. But even if you do have qualifications, uh, just getting an H-1B is, is pretty infeasible. You know, the, there's a, essentially a lottery because the amount of visas runs out in a couple of days every year. It's an extremely difficult process. And what I ended up doing was finding this visa called an O-1 visa. And they, and they, they literally call it the alien of an extraordinary ability visa. And, uh, and I was like, okay, well, I'll try and get this visa because it is the only visa that doesn't have any education requirements. And then I was like, well, I haven't done anything extraordinary. So I need to think of something extraordinary to do. And that was when I decided to write a couple of books. I was like, this will, this, this will probably be enough of a, of a bar to, to get into the country to get this visa. And I found a, an editor who worked at O'Reilly Media, the programming book company, and convinced them that I was going to write this book. And they were like, okay, you're 20, so 21, so we're not going to give you an advance, <laughs> but uh, go ahead and, uh, and write this programming book. And so I, and so I did. Very cool. And so as you go through that process, uh, were you calling it copy script at the time or, you know, did you have a working title? Well, my, the, genesis of the project, the first, the first book I wrote for them, I actually ended up writing two. Uh, and the first book I wrote for them was called, um, JavaScript web applications. Gotcha. And this was a book that I'd wanted to exist for a long time. I'd been doing a lot of work in JavaScript and also on the back end in Ruby and it, occurred to me that there, we, there was really a lot of missing uh, frameworks and patterns on the client side. You know, at the time there was no MVC or any separation of concerns. And so I wanted to write a book about it. So that was the first book. And I, and I was thinking, you know, look, I can either sit down in London and write this book or 
I can buy a round the world ticket and write this book as I'm traveling. So I ended up doing the latter and traveling through Southeast Asia and South America and uh, South Africa and all sorts of places writing this book. Um, and when that was done, O'Reilly came back to me and were like, oh, there's this thing called Coffee Script, which I'd never even heard of before. And they were like, we want you to write a book on it. So I wrote a book on that. And uh, I'm curious, in your travels, you know, you're writing the book. Uh, are you still coding at this point? Or are you scheduling your days so that, you know, you're writing in the mornings? Are you writing in the uh, evenings? Um, what's that schedule like? Yeah, I was uh, doing a bit of coding. I was doing a lot of surfing. Uh, so I would... Um, kind of right in between, uh, you know, those activities. Um, and also in a lot of places like South Africa, there wasn't uh, much electricity. So I was kind of uh, limited at the time that I could write anyway, just based off, you know, when the generators were running. Gotcha. And uh, so after you wrote the books, um, what was the reception like and what surprised you? And then what uh, was maybe like the uh, most, funny story that happened as a result of you writing the books? I mean, they're very niche books. So, I mean, those people that were very friendly and, and, and kind and said, and said nice things about the books, but the goal behind them was to get the visa and I got that. Um, <laughs> but I definitely made a lot of friends along the way. You know, I was in Costa Rica and I get this email from this guy called Roberto and he says, Hey Alex, I've just read a beta version of your book. And I see you're in Costa Rica. Would you like a free surfing tour? And I was like, absolutely. And so he took me down the coast. We stayed at his house in a national park. And uh, again, no electricity there, just solar panels. So we would surf while the batteries were recharging and then, uh, and then code together. And, uh, and it created an incredible friendship. And I actually ended up working with Roberto at Clearbit and he ended up being uh, one of our first engineers. Nice. And as you continued to uh, think about your career, you started to work for Stripe at a certain point. Uh, what was that process like and uh, what attracted you to the company? Uh, I mean, if you're living on the internet, you know, it's impossible to not be aware of Stripe, but how did you become aware and how did you land that job? So I joined Stripe around... 20 people. And I'd met, I was working at Twitter at the time and I, my goal was to create a company as soon as I was done with Twitter. And I was just working at Twitter to go through the green card process. And I met John Collison at a party and um, we really hit it off. We got chatting and it was clear to me that Stripe was going places. It was a very, obviously going to be a very successful company hasn't I did not realize it was going to be as successful as it has been today, <laughs> honestly, but it was clear it was going to be successful. And one of the indications was when I was walking around the office, you know, the early team, the first 15 people there, most of them were multimillionaires. They did not have to work. And the fact that they were working on son. someone else's idea <laughs> was quite incredible to me. Yeah. That's fascinating. And had you been in an environment like that before, or did you just start to piece together that, okay, this isn't just a rare occurrence. It's something that happens, you know, once in a decade type thing. Yeah. I don't think I quite appreciated um, how special that place was at the time. 
But I do think I left a good mark on it. You know, I came in with a bunch of ideas that I wanted to create, and I ended up shipping about half of them. The checkout, for example, the Stripe checkout was something that I came up with and built at, at Stripe. And uh, the idea behind that was that most people's checkout flows suck. And if we could raise the conversion rate of most checkouts by more than what Stripe cost, then Stripe was a net positive for people. And we actually managed to do that. Which is uh, very impressive. So is that, would you say that's one of the products that you're most proud of shipping? Uh, or is there another one that you're, you know, you think is kind of like a testament to your engineering prowess maybe? I mean, outside of Clip, I mean, the example you mentioned was, but uh, I mean, just, you know, any others? I did the iOS libraries at Stripe as well. It's kind of crazy. There was no mobile libraries at the time. Um, cool. And not so much of miscellaneous things there. But I'm, I'm, I'm ha- I only stayed there a year, but I'm very happy about the, uh, the impact I had. Nice. And uh, when you knew that the time was right to leave, how'd you go about that process? And how did you go about founding Clearbit? Well, I left, um, quite honestly, without knowing what I was going to do. Then created a little lifestyle business um, called Sourcing.io that lets you uh, find software engineers. And that went pretty well, and that was making a good salary, but I was pretty bored. And at that point, I decided to sell that company and start Clearbit. The thought process was that I was in my 20s, I had a lot of energy, I felt like I had a lot of self-growth to do. I had little idea of the amount of self-growth, but I knew there was something there. And so I wanted to try and start a, a company, something much bigger, and use that to self-actualize. I love that. <laughs> That's a, a really beautiful statement. So when you say self-actualize, what, what do you mean behind that word? And for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with like Maslow or anything like that, how do you think about that concept? Well, there are many ways to self-actualize. And the way I define it is basically trying to become the best version of yourself. And people will do this over their lives if they're introspective. Um, they will you know, meditate. Um, they will ask for feedback from people. But honestly, starting a company is one of the best ways of doing it, I think. I agree. <laughs> it really, really pushes you to your extremes and you, you have to evolve and, and learn and be creative and improve, you know. When you are running a 100-person company, that is a huge responsibility to, to the people that work there and you, you have to be a good leader to them. And so it, it really forces you to emotionally mature and you know, that one of the best things I ever did at Clearbit was set up this feedback safe environment and create this virtuous cycle where people felt like it was safe to give me feedback and vice versa. And, and that was one of the best things I ever did, you know, that really showed me some of the blind spots that I had. And, uh, and I would not be the person today had I not done that. So I'm curious, how did you go about setting up those forums or having those conversations? And uh, how did your executives get involved in making that happen? So I started the company um, and I think it was worth going into, into the context. So yeah, please. I, I was running it for about six months, building it, 
it out, trying to get it to profitability and getting somewhat of the way there, but also running out of money. So I decided to raise a seed round. And once I'd done that, I hired out the early team. And that early team are still all at Clearbit almost five years later. I got extremely lucky, I think, with the people that I met. We worked together, it's about five people. We worked together just out of my apartment for a year, just trying to get it to a million dollars ARR, and then we've grown the company together. And, um, and it was that group of people that ultimately turned into my leadership team. And just being able to be vulnerable in front of a, a special group of people helped me be more vulnerable in general. But I, need, I needed that group of people that I really trusted to essentially act as all my co-founders that I could really talk about my, my hopes, fears, and desires in front of. Um, and, and then set up this, this um, agreement of feedback where they would give me feedback and I would give them feedback. And we actually do it in our one-on-ones weekly. And I've got some pretty, um, you might consider it brutal feedback that I've received in the past, but it has been absolutely key to growing. So when you get that brutal feedback and your brain and your body start to go into fight or flight or defensive mode or whatever, um, how do you ensure or try to ensure that you don't take immediate action during that time and you just Mm -hmm. like process it fully before you uh, respond? Oh, that's a great question. So we actually have a whole format for giving and receiving feedback. And there's a way that you can give feedback that doesn't invoke the lizard brain. Um, <laughs> and you just talk about, about your own truths. So you say, when you did X, Y, Z, something that a camera would record, some fact, when you did X, Y, Z, I felt emotion. Um, because the story in my head was da 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 da. Does does that make sense? Because yes, yeah. all of that's inarguable. You know, you can't say to someone, "No, you didn't feel that emotion," or "No, that's not the story in your head." Well, um, yeah. I mean, starting with the fact is very very important because uh, memory can be a challenging thing for different right. people who are experiencing different emotions. And there's that making sure that both parties are on the same page with a fact seems like a great way to start. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole book about this um, called nonviolent communication that we based our feedback uh, system off. And, um, and then we also have another book called the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. And we ask everyone who joins the company to read this book. And this also gives us another framework to, to really process feedback and also tons of other uh, ways of interacting. It's, it, it's really helps us locate ourselves. You know, a big part of emotional maturity is being like, Oh, I'm angry. Why am I angry? And following that thread rather than immediately reacting. And I think following that thread is something that's uh, everyone listening knows that they're following some type of thread, thread right now where, you know, whether it's uh, at work or in their personal lives or anything like that. So are there any stories you can share about, uh, times in your life where you've, you know, followed that thread and, um, what that journey or what that story has been like for you? Yeah. Well, I can give you an example of a particularly uh, tough feedback to receive that I got from my COO at the time, Luke Whiting, who told me, he sat me down and he was like, Alex, 
you suck at public speaking. <laughs> you know, every morning you drone on and on in the all hands or every Monday morning and, and it's, it's hurting the company. It's demoralizing and it's, and it's going to hurt us even more as we grow. Damn. And uh, yeah, that was pretty tough. But I realized that Luke told me that because he loved me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's tough to tell, you know, your boss, a CEO that he sucks is something that a CEO should be good at. But I think part of the reason that I, that it was so painful was because I knew it was true. I secretly knew it was true. And so what I did after receiving that feedback was I got a speech coach and uh, I've been working with him and I'm not going to stop until I'm great at public speaking. And what's the, how many sessions have you had with the speech coach and how's that gone? I've had, um, I've had two sessions with him and I've got two more in the coming weeks. Um, it's going extremely well. I wish I'd done it a lot earlier. Honestly, if, <laughs> if anyone wants uh, an intro, then uh, find my contact details and email me and I'll introduce you. I've uh, introduced this guy to a ton of other CEOs who's, who he's really helped. So um, it, it's just a very important skill, I think. You know, you, you, you have these ideas and you think they're going to be helpful to other people, to your team, you need to get people thinking and focusing on the ideas and not the delivery. And yes. if you're constantly yeah. stammering and uh, just looking evasive, then they're going to not trust you and not focus on the content. Yeah, especially if you, uh, as many CEOs tend to do, oscillate between emotions, and uh, especially if you're very passionate about what you're doing. Um, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's super important to do. Are there any stories in Clearbit's corporate mythology that you can share maybe, whether it was uh, the seed round or the Series A or a huge enterprise client uh, that you closed at the last minute or something like that? Oh, man, I do remember when we were in an offsite once and I ran the tests and I forgot that I'd put uh, production uh, Envar in uh, my testing environment, which was a very silly thing to do. And, uh, and I dropped the whole user's table. <laughs> so, uh, and we scrambled to get it back up, you know, but that happened on a weekend and no one complained. So I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> well played, well played. And um, so I'm curious as well, uh, if you don't mind sharing, why did you choose to go with one investor for your Series A? when many people right now are doing, you know, trying to work with three firms at once. And, you know, you do have elite investors that are very interested right now in taking an entire Series A. Uh, you know, do you feel that's a, a good long-term partnership strategy? Uh, what was your thought process there? Well, we actually went with three investors. And so we, the last round we raised was 15 million and that was four years in. And for the last four years, we've been cash flow positive. Congrats, and, and we, yeah, not easy. Yeah, thank you. And I, we thought we'd, we wouldn't raise again, but ultimately we decided to because we felt you know, investment and VC is just another tool. And if it makes sense, it makes sense. And we just felt like we were compromising on some of our plans and we wanted a bit of extra cash to try and realize everything we wanted to do. And so we ended up raising um, a pretty unconventional A round from some uh, great and great investors that I love working with. 
you know, if, when it comes to raising, the, the advice I give you, I give any entrepreneurs listening to this is for the seed, definitely raise on a safe and a priced round will cost you $40,000. So raise on a safe and just put it behind you and realize that the cap is usually the valuation and pick a reasonable cap, not too low, not too high, and don't raise more than a couple of million because the early rounds are very dilutive and then stick that behind you. Um, and then for the A, uh, you can then do a priced round if you want. We actually did something very unconventional where we decided that we wanted to convert all of our safes just to get them on the cap table. It's good corporate hygiene. And it also, you know, if you're creating an employee stock pool, it's only fair that everyone gets diluted. So we actually got all of our seed investors to sign conversion documents. And essentially we wrote these ourselves. We wrote our own essentially term sheet and we got, got like 30 or 40 people to sign this thing and, um, and converted all the other seed investors. And uh, so that, that, that can work as well if you're willing to, to jump through all those hoops. What's an analogy there? Is that like doing, you know, your own direct listing? What's, uh, yeah, what's that akin to in the financial world? Kind of. It's a little, it's a little ballsy. I, I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a great idea because the terms that you use for the seed round or whatever the last round was are generally used as the basis for negotiation for the next round. Sure. So if you write them yourself, you know, that's always a good place to start. But yeah, I don't know if there's another, if there's another analogy on the, with the public markets. Well, it seems like, um, you know, doing that, you mentioned that it was ballsy, which it is, but it's also seems pretty courteous, right? Or, I mean, how did the investors that, uh, can you share any of their reactions when you did this? Cause I mean, we're at a point where, um, you know, we did a safe and now we're very cash flow positive and we don't need, um, to take equity investment and we have loan offers and everything. And I don't want our first safe investors to feel, you know, slighted. And I also want to make sure because they're, um, they're very accomplished. So uh, one was a partner at Founders Fund and then another was at Sequoia Scouts. Uh, I want to make sure that the investment goes on the books as being, uh, you know, really positive. So that's just like full disclosure, kind of like what we're struggling with. So I'd love to hear your thought process behind that. Yeah, well, every, everyone's actually aligned with, with this. Like the investors want to get on the cap table. They, A, they get a lot more protections. Uh, B, the LPs don't even understand what a safe is. So um, it is when they're on the cap table, they can actually claim that they own a bit of the company. So I would just do the same thing that we did. Just, um, you know, I'm sure they'd be happy to, you know, sign and convert their shares or their, their safe into, into shares. That's a great idea. Yeah. And um, are you using Carta or what, what type of management software? Yep. Carta. Sure. So any other big enterprise clients or maybe customer success stories you can share um, that you've uh, achieved in like, I think multi-year partnership stories are always fun. So have there been any key clients that have been there since the beginning with you? Well, we're not an enterprise company. So, you know, the, the largest deal we have is... Oh, gotcha. My, you know, yeah, I keep saying I'm kind of obsessed with enterprise. Sorry. <laughs> you know, for you. The, uh, the, the, the largest deal we deal, have... That's a great place. Yeah. Yeah. It's maybe like three hundred, four $400,000. Um, so it's not really an enterprise land. Sure. I um, generally speak, uh, stick out of the go-to-market stuff just because it's not my forte. You know, I spend the majority of my time 
uh, well, in the early days, it was a lot of engineering and product work. And these days, it's a lot of uh, management training and thinking about the future. And you might ask yourself, Alex, why, or ask me, why, why are you spending so much time on management training? Isn't that something you should delegate? I just think it's the way that we scale the company and keep it as happy as it is. You know, we have remarkably low attrition. When we ask our employees, you know, how happy they are out of 10, the average is um, 8.5 to 9. Um, That's that, pretty solid. Which is incredible. And so the, well my job is to just maintain that uh, as we grow. And um, how do you do that? Well, I think the answer is great management. I think management is just sorely uninvested in most companies, which is, I think, such a shame because it's such a huge point of leverage. So are you and your management team reading the same books? Or is there like an e-learning uh, system you have at your company? Are you having offsites every month? What are you doing there? Yeah, so um, the first book that we ask everyone to read, not just managers, is that 15 Commitments on Conscious Leadership. And that gives you a framework for curiosity, trying to search for the truth rather than tied to being right all the time. So that's, that's like the, the framework, the, the, like the bedrock. And then we build on top of that. There's a book called um, The Great CEO Within, and it's by my exec coach called Matt Mashari. And this book is mostly geared towards CEOs and entrepreneurs and leaders, but it details how to build a company, how to give and receive feedback, how to uh, put all these processes in the company to scale the company up. And so that's another resource we use. I've been helping finish that book actually, and it's going to come out soon. It's a Google doc right now, so you can find it online for free, but it's going to be on the, in the Kindle by the end of the year. And then the last resource we have is the management handbook. And this is something that I've been writing the last year. Uh, it is also something that we are going to uh, publish for free online. And this details every, all our best practices around management. Uh, in terms of um, managers or capital allocators, let's expand it there, who inspire you? Is there anyone that you would say is maybe not go so far as to say heroic, but you know, whether it's like Bezos or Buffett or Gates or any traditional ones, or maybe some untraditional ones, but I'm curious, who are your kind of business inspirations? That's a good question. You know, uh, yeah, a biz, a business um, inspiration for me has always been Richard Branson. And, um, and I actually met him recently at a, um, a music festival and I tried to keep my cool, but I could not, <laughs> but um, I just love the way that he, he has fun, you know. It's it, these these companies. If you're still you allowed if, to do right, like yeah, Silicon Valley kind of uh, thinks yeah, that that is like illegal or something. I know people so. are so serious. Yeah, but at the end of the day, this is just a B two B SaaS company. You know, <laughs> this could be really really boring if we let it get boring. So we just have to learn how to have fun. No, exactly. And so how do you, as a leader, do that inside your company culture? How do you make sure that fun is happening in a way where it's not forced fun because nobody likes forced fun, um, but people like fun that is organic and kind of playful. So how do you create a culture and kind of keep tabs on, on that? 
Well, I set a good example. So people look to you as to gauge like how silly they can be for better for worse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for our Halloween party, I dressed up as Ariel, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's, that's all. <laughs> it's got to be as ridiculous as possible. Did you move or did you have that? Could, did you have to lay in people like fed you grapes or something? <laughs> I uh no I had a, a full like fish costume on <laughs> and bra and everything so um uh yeah it was it was <laughs> it was funny and then uh this at an office halloween party or was this like outside of work yeah this is office halloween party okay. but um yeah that's brave so so parties are one way um but we all do all sorts of fun things like we did a russian river float the other day uh where we um you know, to the company there, we, our offsites are fun. We, we, we've took the whole company to Tulum twice. Um, and, uh, you know, previous offsites has been Costa Rica and a few other places. You know, I told you about the computer games, you know, we play those things. I DJ on Fridays. We do, um, boozy Fridays where, um, we, we have, we actually have in-house chefs who are just incredible. And so they'll, they'll put together a cocktail and I'll DJ in the, in the Friday afternoons. So there's like, there's there's tons of these little things that one does to try and make things a bit more fun. Yeah, I mean that sounds pretty uh, pretty awesome. I'm curious, what about about um, when it comes to DJing? What's your uh, do you have a stage name and do you have any? Um, yeah, what are you? Uh, I don't even know what to say. What are you spinning right now, or <laughs> what are you playing, listening to? Oh uh, wow. Okay, so this is kind of embarrassing. But my my stage name is DJ Rose, and <laughs> <laughs> that's not and embarrassing. This, that's that's uh, that hasn't been taken, right? That's that's like that was still you, open. You know, it's bizarre, but no one no one had taken it. It sounds uh, like that. I mean, <laughs> and that's so incredible. Yeah, I um, Do you have an agent. I don't have an agent. Um, yeah. Okay, no, but I do like Rose, and so that's why I was called DJ Rose. And I have a SoundCloud. You can go and check it out. And I um, do a lot of recordings in the evenings. And it's a way for me to uh, relax and unwind. It's a little deep house. Uh, um, Some some of it's really intense. Some of it's really soothing. Uh, Some of it is kind of Burning Man-esque. Some of it is just remixes of modern songs. And so all over the place, I try and mix it up just to push myself and try and mix different genres. Uh, I did a nineties party the other day where I um, tried to mix nineties rap, which is extremely difficult to do. <laughs> the nineties were solid. Um, so um, when it comes to nineties rap, uh, are you East coast, West coast, uh, or are you all over? I mean, all over, but I, uh, yeah, I I just I just love '90s music in general. Um, you can actually, if you want to hear the the recording of that party, it's on it's on SoundCloud. Oh, awesome! Yeah, we'll be sure to link that up in the show notes, and uh, I'm gonna listen after the interview. Um, so, yeah, did you, is it filled with like you know like Locks, Jadakiss, Cameron? Uh, what's you know Biggie, all, Poppy, all yeah, the all, all the above. It's like throughout the night we went from. Just rap, just to, you know, electronic dance and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Nice. Very cool. And um, in terms of your, like, informational consumption routine, 
Are you a big fan of paper books? Do you have a Kindle? Uh, do you not really see that as a trade-off? And um, yeah, what's your process like for consuming books? Yeah, I have a Kindle. Well, actually, I just use the Kindle app on my phone. You know, I was complaining about it, and then someone made the point that I read a lot of other things on my phone. So, <laughs> it's is it fine. bad for your eyes? I don't think that it is. I don't think there's any research that shows it is. I didn't, I didn't think so. I think it's just bad for one's attention because gotcha. yeah. you can easily switch to something else. So, just you got to put it in airplane mode and and read. Um, so I do a fair amount of reading. I've been getting a lot more into podcasts and, uh, and then I also just love writing. You know, I, I, I write every day. I feel like it's also the one of the best ways of learning is, is writing about something. So I have a, I have a blog that I occasionally update, but I also do a lot of writing internally, a lot of, you know, announcements and explanations to the whole company as to, uh, why we're building these things or what we've achieved, that kind of thing. And uh, when you're scheduling your writing time, is that something that is uh, flexible or is that something you always like to have at the same time, same place every day? Oh, it's, it's flexible. You know, I try and keep my schedule fairly open. I don't meet outside uh, people generally. I, um, I pretty much just meet candidates and I don't really take outside meetings. And uh, I certainly don't meet investors because that's just a waste of time. And so I have, I have large bits of my day open, which I use writing and, and thinking. So when you're thinking, do you like to get a thought on paper a lot, you know, very quickly, or do you like to maybe like file your thoughts? You know, are you a fan of memory systems like the memory palace? Do you always, do you feel urged basically to write down your thoughts and, and do you ever hold back with some and just let them percolate in your brain, I guess is the question. Well, your brain was made for having ideas, not for holding them. So as soon as I have an idea, I, I write it out. Otherwise, it's just going to go off into the ether. Um, so I, I use the Notes app and, and, uh, on the Apple quite a lot. I use Notion a huge amount. Um, and I use subtle svbtle.com to blog is there an uh, optimal essay length that you've found or that maybe an optimal essay length meaning one that you both love to create and that the audience loves and that is also evergreen if that makes sense well optimal is as short as possible to get an idea across but if if anyone is looking for good advice around essay writing I would point them towards Paul Graham, who I think is one of the best writers in the world. And he actually wrote an essay about essay writing and it changed my whole approach to how to write. So what was the before writing like and what was the after writing like? Well, when you are taught to write in uh, high school, for some reason it's associated with English classes. And uh, which is crazy because essay writing is not, you know, specific to studying, you know, Charles Dickens or whatever it is. It's, it's, you can write essays about everything. Um, and then the way they teach you to write essays is you have uh, introduction, which kind of states your, the points, you know, the main argument you're making. And then you have point one, point two, point three, and then the conclusion, which kind of just repeats the introduction. And the way that Paul Graham writes is he writes like a meander, 
when he starts, you feel like he doesn't even know how it's going to end. And it's, it's just a lot more interesting. It, it twists and turns like a river and, and, and sure it's, it's a little long potentially, but he takes you along this journey and you can just see how his, his brain is working. I mean, has, you, you can kind of, you're, you're there with him. And it's, it's, it's so much more entertaining than just, you know, argument, point, 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 you know, conclusion. It's, it's, it's I think, sure. much better. If you, <laughs> if you actually use the essay as a way of thinking about something and, uh, and you, you write it like this meander, I, I think that is, that is the way to write. I completely agree because it's the only authentic way, I think, to, to write. It's not humans always apply a narrative fallacy to, to things. So if you're not writing about them as you're thinking through them, it's um, not going to be as authentic as if you, you know, wait a year to kind of like process something or write about it and, or whatever the case is. Right. Um, so Alex, I'm curious when it comes to essays, which are kind of a form of autobiography in a sense, do you subscribe to Orwell's idea that they're not to be trusted unless they reveal something that's disgraceful or, and you know, do you define disgraceful as being semi-vulnerable or something like that maybe? Yeah, I think there are different types of essays. I think some are meant to be purely informational and um, disclose something that you just hadn't uh, known. And then there, there is the controversial idea essays, and I really enjoy those. I think we live in this time now where it's dangerous to say what you think and to, to write you know, your, your true ideas. And it's a, it's a shame, you know, we, we, we have this culture of public shaming these days where you, you publicly shame people that have viewpoints that are abhorrent to yours or opposed to yours. And that just serves to drive people apart. You know, there's no room for a nuanced view on anything controversial. It's, it's, it's got to be black or white it's got to be right or left you know right so or wrong <laughs> which it's, is so uh yeah it's always sad to watch right um because there's i feel like it's hard to even sometimes like return home or it's it's really hard to see people who are caught up in that and can't seem to get out um does that make sense um and so maybe how do you deal with that when you see somebody that's caught up in that well there's a few little meditations that you can use to help open up your mind and be a bit more curious. Um, and there's one that I really like called viewing the opposite. And it's basically, it's, it's this simple. How could the opposite be true? And just, just thinking about and, and creating arguments in your head about how the opposite could be true of certain viewpoint you have. Sure. You know, when the Wright brothers, when they were arguing they would often take each other's sides. Like they would switch sides and argue the other person's point. And then you really get to sit in someone's shoes and you're, you're less tied to being personally right. And this is the problem that we have all the time. People will launch into an argument and they want to be right. They're not curious. They, they don't want to learn. And so the little meditations like, how could the opposite be true? I think you're a good way of turning that around. Wise words. 
Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been a blast. I hope everyone listening has learned uh, a lot. I know I have. Uh, is there any final thought or um, maybe a vision you could share, right, about what the next 10 years of Clearbit and your life are going to look like or hopefully look like? Well, that's a, a good question. And honestly, I have no idea what the next 10 years are going to look like. You know, like with the company, we just launched a major new product called Clearbit X. And um, so the short-term goals are to, you know, convert the, the leads from the launch and there was a lot more than we anticipated. So we are kind of um, dealing with all that. Uh, and of course, longer term, we have product goals and, and larger revenue ambitions. You know, every company does. However, that's what we do. That's not why we do it. Longer term, we want to create a shining example that is possible to lead a company with love and vulnerability and that conscious leadership works. I love it. Alex, thanks so much. And everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.